0: Hey guys, this is Emil Heskey, and you're listening to The Guys of Copping Practice.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Top End Fracas, powered by Touchline Media Group. I am your host for this week, Chris, and join me this week to talk about all things LFC, I am joined by Mush, Mike, and Peter. Gentlemen, how are you doing this evening? Yeah, all well,
0: good, brother. How are you?
1: I'm good, thank you. I'm good. I'm happy to be in the company of some, you know, fantastic, you know, company this evening to talk about all things Reds. So. No man, I couldn't be happier.
2: Yeah, man. I'm. Uh, thank you for the introduction. I'm. Uh, it's so weird. I've had more joy being excited about Steven Gerrard than I have been about Liverpool Football Club this week. So uh, it's <laughs> uh, it's been an interesting time. <laughs> Liverpool-related joy, but not necessarily Liverpool themselves.
1: We're gonna get stuck into that a little bit later on. Peter, how are you this week? Yeah,
3: I'm good. It's it's been kind of like. It's been a chilled one, like yeah. There's been not really any stress on my on my score, like on my brain has
2: been plugged away. We keep not... losing our own football matches, Peter. The ones we're playing. Oh, yeah. What do you mean? There's no stress?
3: Yeah, that that is Much stress. One loss. No, I think you're you're talking about.
2: Or you oh, talking a a touch line? I'm talking about touchline football.
3: Oh, you don't wanna, you <laughs> don't wanna see Moshe. Oh, wow. He's the most shameless guy ever. You don't even know what he's done. He celebrates <laughs> at five two down. he's goal. He gave me a little fist. I think, bro, what are you doing? We're five-two down. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Did Mush go and leg it? And get the ball at the back of the net to put it on the uh, centre circle? Yeah. <laughs> bro, even worse. He just he gave it a little fist
3: pump, a little jump, and I think, bro, a little bro. A
2: little <laughs> Gerard,
0: a little Gerard Istanbul, three-one down. Nah. Now
2: nah, what? The, the most shameless bit was I was shaking the hands of all the opposition members because they said it was such a good goal. I was like, <laughs> oh at goodness. least I want to be smiling.
3: So good. So it was good goal
1: though. To be fair, though, <laughs> really, really good goal. Good, nice little log. That's what we like to see, I mean, it's what the audience likes to hear as well. You know, you have got people who can score. World is giving you fantastic football analysis. So, you know, as opposed to the guy who's hosting it, who's got two left feet. So, you know, better, less said about that the better. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, before we do, guys, look into it. Um, of course, we're not going to be doing an Arsenal preview today uh, simply because we just don't have that much information about what's going on. Um, we did have some pictures of Sadio Mane, Jordan Henson, Milner, uh, and weirdly, Harvey Elliott in training uh, today. Um, But for more of that coverage, uh, do head over to our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com forward slash copy and fracas and sign up for just £3 a month today, uh, where you can have access to our Arsenal preview when it drops on Friday morning. And of course, our post-match pod as well, uh, as soon as the game finishes on Saturday as well. Um, Of course, when it is Uh, a marquee matchup um, between Premier League teams. It's also a marquee matchup between Touchline uh, Podcasts, so you can expect a fight card. Yes, that's right. It's going to be a fight card. Uh, I believe it's this Thursday uh, between ourselves at Kef and Touchy Gunas. Um, Julian will be joined by a mystery team member. Uh, His tag team partner has not been revealed yet. It will be revealed at some point later in the week. Um, So be on the lookout for that when it will be announced on our Twitter page, um, which will be, and the event itself will be on YouTube. So do tune into that when we have a little bit more information on it. Um, you know, before we do kind of kick off this pod, um, once it's kind of a little bit of a brief discussion, really, it's kind of just want to say a few things. You know, I've been listening to, you know, Azeem Rafiq's uh, statements and stuff from this morning about, you know, what he's happened at Yorkshire Cricket Club and kind of the, you know, institutional racism that has been there in the cricket club and in the ECB, it seems. And it's kind of made me think that we're quite lucky to have Touchline as a forum for us, you know, as as ethnic minorities to kind of challenge these biases that we kind of see not only within mainstream media, but in mainstream institutions as well. So I just want to say, you know, it's great being on this network where we can kind of talk freely, challenge these things freely as well, and kind of really start to change that viewpoint of things in media and kind of point out these biases too. So, I just want to say it's been a pleasure being part of the network. Um, and you know, may continue that we challenge these things as and well. It is. Um, so let's get stuck into the actual. St- it's a weird one because we've actually got stuff to talk about this week. Whenever we're on an international break, we've got nothing to talk about whatsoever. Um, even if it's not LFC related, we've actually got stuff to talk about, which is interesting. Um, of course, Liverpool confirmed. That Michael Edwards will be leaving uh, next summer as his contract comes to an end. Um, he kind of confirmed that himself in a rather lengthy statement, two thousand words. Uh, Mike, you're someone who grades papers for a living. Um, what would you give that out of out of ten?
0: Literally, that's like an undergrad um, paper he's just delivered there. <laughs> honestly, <laughs> honestly, I was like, why is this so long? But yeah, I'd give that, yeah, I'd give that seventy. Give it a first. Why not?
1: Well, he's, his work over the course of his tenure has earned himself a first, I, I'd like to say as well. Uh, it probably yes. would be, you know, an 80, if not for, you know, Kaita. But less of that, the better. The better. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, after reading that statement, Mike, kind of how do, how do you feel? Do you think it's kind of like a, a shared sentiment from, from himself from the club that it's kind of the right time to part ways? Or do you think there's a little bit more to to that, especially from what you read within the statement itself?
0: So, I know there some like conspiratorial takes, like, oh, he's leaving because of X, Y, and Z. Maybe there's another opportunity for him at another club, or, or like these kind of other takes. I'm of the mindset that I genuinely do believe what he says in the letter where he says that he kind of said at the start of his time, Liverpool, I'm going to spend 10 years at his club and move on. And he does feel like someone who wants to experience different things in life. He's still a relatively young man. And what he's done at Liverpool is he's left a legacy that is hopefully going to stand for some time like he's completely revolutionized the club in so many ways and we focus a lot on transfers right so transfers is kind of how maybe a lot of fans view his role he's the guy that does all the transfers sorts out like the outgoing sorts out like the incomings but he's revolutionized the club beyond that like um analytic analytical driven you know, signings thinking about the, the, the infrastructure around the club with um the, the training ground but like he's been an, such a revolutionary figure in, in so many ways I think for for us and for the club, obviously it's a big blow to see him go just because he's been so successful and just because he has completely transformed the fortunes of the club, along with obviously Klopp and a few others behind the scenes. So it's sad to see him go.
1: No, I completely agree. And I think there's a lot more kind of to it than the transfers, you know, I think it's the one thing that we are obsessed with As not only a fan base, but in football in general, we're obsessed with kind of having these new additions to the team, but who can, who can improve us. But Peter, I'll, I'll come to you. One of the things that I think he's done really well is he's established a culture, uh, a really good kind of institutional culture within Liverpool, a real holistic change about um, how we kind of approach things. So, you know, you look at it from, like like Mike said, with all the analytics and the data-driven approaches that you know have become in football, um possibly in the last five years, to everything to the training ground, he's really led this culture change from within NFC. Do you think that will be his true legacy um at Liverpool as opposed to the players he assigned for the football club?
3: Yeah, I I definitely think so. I think we've seen like a a change in Liverpool's like um transfer strategy. We kind of like before, like, um, this week di- under different managers, are like strategy was kind of all over the place, like signing players where like kind of mismatched. The they weren't like similar to each other. But now, under clock, and especially with Edwards, um, we kind of sign players like in a certain age range, sign players fit a certain mode, you know what I'm saying? So, and we've seen, especially like the data stuff, like I think, um, Shimcast is, is a great example, like, so what they've done with Shimcast is they kind of Try to find someone in a similar mode to Robertson, who can um, definitely um, cross. But is <laughs> <laughs> so basically in the chat, Mush said, take a shot every time Pete says like, hey, you'd be drunk, you'd be a very drunk man. So <laughs> um, oh, yeah, so with Shimcast, they, um, that was a data-driven signing where they kind of found a similar left-back to Robertson in the same mode. who can deliver the same sort of a profile and same sort of delivery that Robertson can. And obviously you've seen especially this season um the damage that Princeton can do. So yeah, I think this is especially um a kind of strategy we can kind of lead on with and carry on with in the future, even when um Edwards goes and I think mean, you've seen in the letter that he's kind of confident um that Liverpool can kind of carry on in his absence. Like he's really like um very confident in Julian Ward taking over and he's very um, confident that he's the man to to do the job. So, yeah, I think this is definitely something that, he, a legacy that he's left. And yeah, I'm not, so I think it's a weird one with Edwards because it's like, we don't really know how much impact he's had behind the scenes. We know obviously it's been a positive one, but like in terms of how will it um, affect Liverpool so much? So I think we can't really see this when he leaves, but yeah, obviously he had a positive impact, but how much impact he's actually had on Arxas. Yeah, it's only time will tell really.
1: It's it's a very good it's a very good question you say there, Peter, as well, that um we don't really particularly know what Michael Edwards does. We can only kind of assume what he does as the role of sporting director, because I don't think I've ever heard the man speak. It's weird that he comes out with this 2000 word letter. It's like for someone I've never heard speak, you're telling me a lot about yourself. But um I think for me as well, one of the true things about, about his job and how well he will have done is how smoothly will things go in the subsequent years that he's left so is the structure that he's put in place will it last and you know will that kind of stand the test of time really with you know all the different kind of people he has assembled to kind of lead this journey into the future there's one thing I did pick up from the statement I just want to quickly read it um, and it was about the stats point. So it's a contrary to popular belief. We don't sign players off stats, but the information provided from their the research does play a crucial role in that decision-making. Whether it is video, written reports, data, background checks, or good old-fashioned scouting from the stand, it, go- it all goes into the decision-making melting pot. And when you make a decision, all this information allows you to do is mitigate the risk you are taking. So I think that, I, I don't know why, I've always find stuff like that really eye-opening because I think you find now, you know, we all kind of like look at football reference to kind of see what players are similar to players and we say, "Okay, cool, let's sign that guy." but it just really tells you how much different stuff goes into what what is scouting players and and all that stuff in the future. Moshe, I'll come to you. Um, there's a really interesting piece from that statement too that said um let's go find it now uh, you know whenever Liverpool sign players, Jurgen says it's fifty percent on him and fifty percent on the player himself to succeed. And when we're talking about kind of building a culture and something that, you know, makes people want to perform better and be the best that they are, I think that is really personified in one person, especially, and that's Mo Salah. Um, how good is it to see that, you know, we're taking this approach that it's not all on the coach to be the be-all and end-all? It is a lot of responsibility on the players to kind of bring the best out of themselves.
2: I think <clears throat> I think you raise a, a brilliant point here, and I think what what's really healthy about that Kind of placement of accountability onto a player is that when a player normally signs for a club, how often do we hear the phrase when, let's say, a managerial regime is going badly, where the the general consensus will be, oh, this isn't the manager's players. Whereas if you if you sign a player and you tell them you are signing for Liverpool Football Club, for the man, you are not signing for a manager. You are signing for the club, and whatever circumstance, it it just pushes. A form of respons- responsibility on 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 the player themselves, knowing that you're going to be remembered for how you contribute, not by how a manager used you. And I think I think that that helps protect the manager, where not everything falls on him. And I, I also think it, it also helps players kind of support one another in the sense of like, I came here, and there was a time where I came, I didn't have my place. Someone like Andy Robertson, how much must it have helped Shimikas when? He joined the club and he wasn't playing games when Andy Robertson can come in and say, look, when I signed and I came in August, I didn't start until December. So don't worry, keep plugging away, um, so on and so forth. I I think I think it just helps everyone take almost a branch of that entire tree and be responsible for it to work as an organisation.
1: Completely agree. Um, and it is like a, a well-oiled machine, really. All the cogs need to go together for it to kind of perform as it is and you know, get to the best of its abilities. Um, Mike, I'll, I'll come to you next. Um, with this kind of standing the test of time, what do you think Michael Edwards will be best known for?
0: I think it honestly depends on, <clears throat> on how you viewed his role. So I think a lot of us have narrowed his role down to his transfers, right? So it's like he's the man who sorted out the transfers. He brought Van Dijk in, he brought Allison in. I think there are two things I remember him for. I think I remember him for revolutionising the approach in terms of the way we approach transfers, like the mm-hmm. analytical-driven approach. And, the, and like, as you mentioned, it's not just be signed players based on their FB ref rating or whatever it is. Or we actually take analytics into. That would be how
1: we did it if, if Ellis had his way. That would be how we did it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Goodness
0: me, that guy's always on every ref, isn't he? No, but um <laughs> so that's, that's that's really surprising because he's like
3: Ellis is quite old fashioned. So the thing that Ellis yeah, spends half his time on ref... <laughs> yeah, just, I can just imagine him think, wait. So how do you? What is that? Is that like SP times
2: night? What is
1: that? Like? <laughs> oh, no. And they're killing my guys. <laughs> yeah, I've kind of dropped it into there, dropped him in there, to be fair, because normally me and him sending him like screenshots back and forth. So I kind of dropped it in there, a bit of a nasty way. But yeah, <laughs> the game is the game.
0: <laughs> no, you don't make the rules. But yeah, I think that kind of approach to transfers, the analytical driven approach. It's become institutionalised for the club and it's an approach that other clubs are trying to replicate themselves. So I think that would be really like a really important legacy that you leave behind, but also in terms of the way we maximize profit from outgoings. So, like Solanke, um, so many players you maximize profit from. But I think the final theme for me is the infrastructure around the club because Liverpool are a massive, massive club, and for so yep. long, the infrastructure hasn't matched up to just how big a club we are. And apparently, the kind of Kirby he played a massive role in the training ground and, and how that was built. and... Obviously, we've seen, along with the owners, we've seen the, the, the stadium, Anfield, you know, a spiritual home for, for the club. We've been able to stay there and, and, the, and the grounds become bigger and bigger and it's going to get bigger again. So those things are, I think, a really important part of his legacy. And I, I don't think we should narrow his legacy down to just transfers, as important as that is. I think there's like an institutionalised approach that he's going to leave behind and hopefully will continue as he goes. And also the infrastructure around the club is 10 times better than it was before he joined so honestly like i think he leaves an indelible mark at the club and some he's someone that will be remembered fondly but i think he, and i think the point you made is, is a really important one krish because i think he'll be remembered even more fondly if we build on the success so if, if like if things go downhill from now we'll be thinking well actually what was the whole institutionalized approach that he spoke that we the club kind of spoke of the, and the end the department he set up has that all crumbled because one guy left? Like that wouldn't be a good reflection on his time at the club, I don't think. So I think for for, for Edwards, it's actually important that the club continues to go from the strength to strength, and it's not necessarily about winning a league every season, but about continuing on the trajectory of being a really top top club because that's the position he's left us in, and hopefully we can we can continue down that road. Yeah. All right.
3: So I've got I've got a question. Um, I'm just kind of like really conscious. So when Edwards came in, what 2011? Mm-hmm. So I'm just kind of conscious of like not painting out his whole time as being like extremely, extremely successful. So obviously before Klopp came, he's obviously under um Gliich and Rodgers. Maybe the end, end of Da But I'm just saying. So i not before Klopp came. Before Klopp came in 2015, and I mean, obviously wasn't that successful. And we obviously had some some sketchy transfers, some good transfers, like how much of part of um, those kind of brains, like in terms of much Rogers, like do you think Edwards was part of, and some of those feels like maybe like a Benteke is, um, for example, and stuff like that. So how much of Edwards part of that before club came? Do you think he is? You know what I'm saying?
1: So, so it the Benteke
3: time, you know, that's what I'm trying to say.
1: No, no, I, I completely agree. Um, so the Benteke one is interesting because that was Brendan throwing a hissy fit saying, "I need this style of player for this to work." which made no sense whatsoever because having that type of player in the way that Brendan Rodgers wants to play football was absolutely insane and made no sense then, and it makes even less sense now. Mush, can you agree with that?
2: Oh, mate, please carry on. I don't even want to
1: speak about <laughs> so this. I think I remember having a conversation with you at the time and we were like, what the fuck is this? Because uh, <laughs> it, 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 I- it was just so insane.
2: Mate, I, I, I just think um, to, to answer Pete's point, I think one thing that we need to remember is that when you're doing a roadmap for an organisation, which is what Liverpool are, your changes and, and your ultimate goals are a lot wider spread than the, the week by week or the season by season kind of way we judge a team. Like we've been talking about, about how it's hard to gauge how successful you've been as an organisation when you're using the team as the measuring stick. Um, and and I think that's the big thing that's difficult to judge here. Maybe, what we don't know is in a year, maybe that we had a bad season, like 14, 15, for example, maybe that was a year where he didn't put a lot of attention into the playing squad and it was a more, more about Liverpool, the organisation. It, it's hard because we only judge it by one
0: factor that we care about,
2: which is results in the team.
0: Yeah. And to be and to be fair, to add to that point, he only became sporting director in twenty sixteen. So okay. that's that's so really means, when I that's yeah. really when I assess his time at the club. Like okay. before that, I'm kind of unclear about what his role was specifically. But as sporting director, he he has clearer job description, right? And I was him based on that period, basically.
1: I'm pretty sure his job is. I'm pretty sure his role at that time was the guy who fights Brendan Rodgers in the Melwood car park. How <laughs> <gets into his, laughs> many times did that, that transfer committee put in heads? But I mean, you could see elements of that model introduced 13-14 and even yeah. before, you kind of look at I think is a really good metric of that model it's a guy who you can see all the elements of a very good player there, there are data analysis to back it up, you bring him for that cup price fee I don't think there was any kind of imagination that we would sell him for you know, obviously 120 140 million pounds right. um, down, down the line, but you can kind of see yeah, but- the sprouts of that in there
0: yeah. Even it, Aspas it, it, and really Alberto. Well. Like, Aspas and it, Alberto it, agree. Yeah. are yeah. players that don't work out at Liverpool, but they go on to be very, very good players elsewhere. Like, Aspas is one of the best players in the Spanish league and has been for a number of years. And Luis mm-hmm. Alberto is one of the best midfielders in um, the Italian league.
1: Yeah, because if Brendan Rodgers had his way, um, he would have signed Ashley Williams and Wilford Bonnie, <laughs> so... <laughs> uh, And well, we I wouldn't have his party. I, I so... Can
2: you imagine <laughs> that? I
3: is that the kind of Rodgers, like, I know it wasn't, like, the best time, but, like, the kind of transition from Rodgers to, like, Klopp is not, like, the biggest, like, craziest, like, change. You can kind of see two progressive managers. You kind of have both identities. And, like, it's not like a, it's not like a, I don't know, like a Mourinho, like a, like a whatever, whoever you go and get next, you know what I'm saying? It's not, like, two crazy, crazy styles. So, it's clearly, like, a kind of planned organisation of kind of having progressive mm-hmm. managers. You want to play on the front foot. So, yeah. Definitely, I think you've got to give them some credit.
1: I think it's really interesting that I, I think one of the main reasons behind why he's possibly leaving is that you look at where Liverpool have to head within the next kind of three to four years and the journey we need to take. Um, myself, I'm kind of confident that Klopp will sign some form of contract extension, maybe for one or two years, but there's going to have to be a big overhaul of the playing squad. Um. I mean, we, we, we've known that one person in here has been speaking about it for nearly two years now. Um, and I think he continues to, to bang his fist on the desk, screaming that these things need to happen. Um, the ageism really shines through. Um, <laughs> but it might be, it might not be a thing that Michael Edwards wants to wants to do. He's I've already done this once. I've already facilitated this. I've gone through this entire cycle. I just want to move on to something new. So enter Julian Ward, who will become the new sporting director next summer. How do you think he will, uh, you know, from, from from what we know about Julian Ward, kind of what what do we make of it? So, what do you think his main KPIs will be within this kind of three to four year period?
0: Yeah, I think the main one for him will be rejuvenating the, the squad, so actually addressing the aging. Asian profile of the squad, have mentioned. I've been, I've been talking about this since 2019.
1: <laughs> the smile on your face right now is Bro, Honestly,
0: me. because I've been talking about this for years, and now everyone's on board. Oh, we need to. I've been. I was the first on this train.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Much shaking his head. And you call me shameless, yeah, this guy. <laughs> no, but I think that's that's one of the main things he needs to do. But and also, he will eventually. He'll probably be the sporting director that looks for Klopp's replacement. I yeah. talk about that a bit later with a, a good a, a, a Liverpool legend who could be clocked replacement, possibly, we don't know. But I think those are the two things that needs to address kind of and also the infrastructure of the club, maybe. I think the stadium we're gonna be looking at, you know, kind of increasing the stadium and the size of the stadium. We all want to stay at Anfield, it's kind of like a, like I said, spiritual home for the club. So so yeah, I think those are the kind of three things. So maintaining the world Cup infrastructure and improving on the world Cup infrastructure, addressing the squad and kind of succession planning for the likes of Mane, Salah. Van Dijk even who's going to be 30 he's thirty already, actually, isn't he? So it's it, all of those things, and also eventually Klopp will leave. Like, I think if Klopp does sign a contract extension, it'll be like 2026, maybe 2025. So yeah, that's still what that's four years, five years from now, so it's not too long. So, those are the, those are the three things I think he needs to have on on the top of his agenda.
1: I think that's completely fair. Uh, Mush, yourself. Um,
2: I think just to add to, I agree with all of those kind of um. Those points that he needs to address. I think the other one is also um, sometimes I think succession isn't just trying to do the same thing again in a refreshed way. Meaning like I think Barcelona are a good example of this where they've, they've just tried to they've had a 4-3-3. They've tried to replace who what was once in the 4-3-3 with players that just aren't as good. Whereas sometimes having a good strategy and, and and reshaping it, maybe we evolve into a three-five-two or we evolve into a, a two-up front team. I think it's it's health change is healthy, and I think that's going to be key for um for us to be able to move into a, a healthier transition than us trying to find money again. I don't I don't think that's the right way to
1: approach it. Yeah, I think he's kind of knowing where football is is going and kind of keeping on the on the pulse of that really for you know the different changes in styles and kind of what will operate successfully in in this league too. Um, I think we've really it also gives me a bit of an indication to think that Salah's contract is possibly near done because that would be some some shit show to leave the new sporting director in. All right, cool, take my top. I'm leaving. Uh oh, by the way, you got to sign this lad to a new contract extension or it'll all go up in flames. Um, so, that'd be,
3: that'd be Wait, that would be quite interesting. I, I can't lie, yeah. You see the Julian Ward thing? Boy, like, it's on you, bro. Because, like, you better be good at it. <laughs> it's on you. Because I, I have no clue, like... I know he's been in the... He's an internal, like, kind of um, appointment. But, like, again, I don't have no clue what he does in terms of, like, how um, his job role in Liverpool and how um, his responsibilities. So... Ed, Edwards is saying in the letter that he trusts him and he can trust him with his life that this that so yeah, you know I'm saying he better be good if, if you're saying it's good then I trust you so boy you know what i <laughs> <laughs> but yeah he's, he, yeah he's got some he's definitely got some um, so hopefully he does well
1: he's definitely got some big admirers because you know Klopp and Mike Gordon both kind of pushed him for him to kind of have that job too and i always think it's just good to kind of you know if you want to kind of extend that culture and that way of working that you've kind of implemented it's good to have someone from within that stable um kind of keep that going really um which is just it's just good so you don't want an an outside the community tearing the whole thing apart and then you're left in a little bit of limbo where things just don't work properly um kind of looking at that front three situation because, for me, I think that's the one thing in the near-term future that needs to be addressed in in terms of retooling that front three. Because you know, like I said, I think Salah's close to being done, but I only think one of Mane and Firmino will get extended. Um More than likely, it'll probably be Mane. You think is the? Do you think that would be the biggest test for Julian Ward to navigate in the near future? Just because of the sheer calibre of player, he will have to replace. And more importantly, the longevity that they've gotten from these transfers as well.
0: Yeah, I think so. And also for me, the interesting thing is, I'm going to Mushy's point about not signing just another Mane. Yeah. I just wonder what kind of forward are going to try and identify to fill, it, fill those boots when they do eventually move on or when they begin begin to decline. Some might argue that both players, Firmino and Mane, particularly, have begun their declines already. I would suggest in Mane's case, that's far from true. And Firmino's me, actually shown some signs of life himself. But, like, because for me, when we wide players, so I'm thinking about the three notable ones are Mane, um, Salah, and Jota. They, they're players that are one in two. So, one in two or one in three. So, they, they're going to be, have got players who own the season with 20 plus goals if they play, you know, a fair number of games, right? If they stay fit. Um, and I think that's something the club will continue to look for in a wide forward play is going to get one into. two but I do find a link to someone like Rafinha quite interesting because he's someone that I, I'm not convinced he's going to ever be like a one in two one and three player I think he'll be a one in four player and that's fine but like for our wide players we generally look for one in two one and three but is that actually what we want maybe moving forward do we want to create it from out wide and maybe actually going forward it would it be like a conventional number nine maybe and we wouldn't go for the false line approach so I'm actually just I'm actually just intrigued by the pro follow pick Um and maybe that might change under, under Julian Ward maybe we might be looking for you know maybe maybe creative winger and, and, and a cynical and kind, kind. I don't like I would love to hear your thoughts the centre of players should, should be targeting the player you know or the type of players you think it.
1: Yeah, it is a really interesting question, and you know, I, I want to pause that to to, to to you guys, both Bush and Peter. What what other players do you think we should be targeting for these, both the wide positions and up front as well? Because do you think we should probably probably go for the kind of traditional number nine bagsman? or do you think we should kind of keep it how it is, looking for someone who can kind of operate in those kind of two, those, those mid positions, really? Um I think one thing
2: that we need to remember for whoever, and this is subject to my assumption that Mo Salah staying, right? I think one thing we need to understand is that whoever's coming in is very much coming in as not the star man. I, I mean, a very good player regardless, but I think Mo Salah has really kind of separated himself into being one of the best players in the world and Liverpool's star man, right? So, so I I, I think hmm.
1: you don't you don't you, you that. are very much coming in to be to be Robin. You are not Batman.
2: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And there's nothing wrong with that. There, it, it, when we're saying Robin here, we're talking about two hundred and fifty k a week probably, and and you know you're going to score at least twenty goals a season. So it's not you know it's nothing bad. I think for me a big big player who I think would get a lot out of being at Liverpool, out of playing with Mo Salah, and possibly being a good transition for Firmino. Um, is Zhao Felix. I think Zhao Felix is not happy at Atletico as by by a lot of reports. Um, he's still, even after the amount of investment, $110 million, and the amount of time he's been there now, he's still not a, cert to, a, a dead cert to start. I think a player that good should be built around. A, a player like that should be playing attacking football. I would almost use... <laughs> A Mane and Firmino level amount of budget, whether that's transfer or wage, on someone like Jao Felix, and then get another supplementary Rafinha type or a goal scoring um type like Jota, who would um who'd probably just be dependable and productive, but Zhao Felix and Salah would be my main two. So um, yeah, that, that's how I would approach it personally. Get a super talent and then let everyone else be like almost like Madrid back in 2017-ish where Morata and Mariano and stuff were scoring 15 to 20 goals a season, supporting the big numbers that the Ronaldos and
1: Bales were producing. The Copa and fracas transfer game coming soon to the Patreon next year. Um, <laughs> Peter, uh, about yourself?
3: Yeah, I, I kind of agree with Mush. Um, But the way I think of it, I want someone like a supporting cast to sell as well. But the way I, I think we kind of miss a creator in the fold or a creator, or someone who can create through their like dribbling, or we can penetrate teams if they're through the dribbling. So the way I look at it is, I think we kind of need someone who can play on, you can play on the right as well. I think we're, we're kind of um like we lack players who can play on the right apart from Salah. So again, Rafina fits that more because I feel like especially later in his career, Salah will move into the middle. And then when we get someone like a Rafinha, he'll be able to play on the right and be like a creator. So my idea is that we'd have two shooters. So let's say we have Seller through the middle, Jota on the left, and then Rafinha, who's also a creator from the right. So you have two one in two um, players, like Mike said, and then one whatever, one in four, one in three. Or if you don't want to get Rafinha, you get like someone who can, um, yeah, you know, take on players like through Marnie. The way Maner used to do, you know what I'm saying? He used to be able to take on players one v one. He used to kind of create space for Seller. Yeah, you know I'm saying etc. So, yeah, I think I'll, I'll go. I'll look at it that way in terms of trying to find a forward who's able to complement Salah and will allow Salah um into being a number nine in the future.
1: Sure. Well, um, I, I've been a fan of this specific player for for a while, and I was a little bit annoyed when we didn't get him at, at the time. But I think someone like Lucas Paqueta would be really good for Liverpool. Um, operating really good positions, really good on the ball. Um. And he's really stout in his defensive contributions too um, you know he's got some decent passes that can break the line so someone like that would be would be really good for Liverpool um, yeah, also God, potentially
0: out Kareem, Kareem Adiemi. Yes, I'll please. take him for yeah, like yes. it looks like he could be going to Dortmund the, the rumours linking quite oh, strong Ryan. to Dortmund as so, apparently Dortmund is Haaland's replacement so we so, will go next summer
1: so a friend of the pod Christian Falk. You know how we do it, it's you know okay. it illustrious friends of copy <laughs> Um name
3: dropping, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um
1: he, he said that you know um Adeyemi would be, you know, willing to go to Liverpool, all it would take is a phone call from Jurgen Klopp to do the deal. Um and you know, I guess if things are to be believed, as with most players within that Red Bull system, there is some form of release clause there. So you know, that'd be one for me. It just makes complete sense all around, really, to, to, to get to get done. So, yeah. Can I can I ask where
2: you guys stand mm. on someone like Osiman?
1: I think mean, he costs too much money. Uh,
0: Napoli would not sell him. Like Kuriy has been there for God knows how long, right? Because hasn't he been linked for a move for like five years now? What What do you think then? Death row.
3: Yeah, yeah,
0: death row. He's on a death row contract. I actually, if, if we're talking about strikers. Well, you might even try so to wide, wide forwards. I like the look of Dan Juma. I think you're a big fan as well, Mush.
2: I I think Dan I I think Dan I, I big, think big that Juma, with the right with the right coaching can become money I, I genuinely think that. He's got I think the big thing about Dan Juma is he's got a great um standing start like burst and beating the players, and that's how money has really built his Liverpool career. He doesn't really beat players on the move. He stands them up, then he beats them. I think, obviously, to get to Mane's level, Dan Juma needs a killer streak and ruthlessness that we're probably we're going to need to see through his time at Villarreal, whether he has. But that, that penetrative way of beating players, I think he's got.
1: Dan Juma is a re- really interesting one because you can see how, with a dribbling and... Kind of how he takes people on, and he's actually pretty decent on set pieces as well. But I think the only downside is his release clause at Villarreal is like eighty million or something stupid like that. So I don't think we spend eighty million quid on on Dan Juma in his current iteration. If that makes sense, it's it's. It, I, I want to do a whole pod on this, basically, just in terms of players we should be should be looking to target. So um, final but, name,
0: final. will be. It'll be remiss if I didn't mention him. Harvey Barnes. Everyone knows I'm a big fan of Harvey Barnes, and I'm listen. I feel like he's the sort of player that got, he will be a one in two player at some point in his career. And like, Mate, I, I feel like, say like
3: that's what I think he's going to say, Mike.
0: Nah, nah, I've jumped up. When well, not jumped on the Moyhouse bandwagon for now, but like, I'm. I'm ah! Clear, you jumped off, man. David. Ah! I've still got stopped. I've still got stopped, bro, but I'm just I'm just keeping quiet on that one for now. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> uh,
1: at, you, Chris,
0: what are you
3: saying? <laughs>
1: You are aware that um, Julian's going to listen to this and flog you from here to Teams Book too, <laughs> bro. I've
0: I've still got the stocks. I'm just saying, you know, it's not one I'm I'm going to shout too much about until you know, after see him perform over the course of the season.
1: Silent partner, <laughs> yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you know. How it goes. <laughs> um. Obviously, we will be remiss. Um. Was talking about succession planning, uh, without talking about one, Mr. Stephen Gerrard, who um, joined Newcastle as their head coach. I always feel that's weird when people are head coaches apart from managers now. I, I don't know when that trend kind of started. I always find it a little bit, a little bit weird. Um, it's the exact same job. It's just a weird job title to assign, assign to. Um, but yeah, just me rambling on. Um, so it's got me thinking about kind of life after Klopp and you know what it would look like. So I want to ask you guys, What route do you think the club will go down? And, you know, any managers do you think personally would fit the bill when that time does come? Uh, Because it it might be, you know, three years from now, four years from now, five years from now, but the day will come where he does leave. We'll all be grown men in tears when it it does happen. Um, But it will happen. So, what names or what kind of strategy do you think the club will look to when that day does
0: come? So I think there are three routes the club are going to go down. I think I, I've discussed this in the WhatsApp group chat before, right? So I think you have the fairy tale option, which is one that I'm, I have some like love for, which is the Steven Gerard route. There's the kind of Liverpool way, the slash internal recruitment route, which is Pep Linders, and there's also just the best manager in the market, who I think at the moment, if we're replacing Klopp like right now, the best manager who I available, well not necessarily available, but like the best manager in the market is probably Ten Hag. Agree. I think. So those are the three routes, but again, it's hard to know what that's going to look like in two years' time because I, I call Gerard the fairy tale manager now, but come twenty twenty four, he might actually have proven a Villa, but he's actually a really good manager, so he could both be the fairy tale and also the best manager in the market. We literally do not know that yet. I'm personally thinking the club are, are quite like they're they're not like romantics. They don't care about the story that we. Can. I listen. Have you guys seen the, the video of the guy at the wedding? He's like weeping, his, he's weeping like a, like just he's so in love with his wife. He's just like, yeah, crying. yeah, 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 yeah. That'll be me. <laughs> That'll be me if Matt Jarrard becomes our manager. Like, I will be in tears. That like honestly, and if he wins the league for us, like honestly, I'll just be crying like a guy for like a month or something. That emotions got you already, <laughs> the has got, got to me, bro. I love, I love the story. I love the fairy tale of football. But I actually think the club are, are, are a lot more like cold. Yeah. Don't, I don't think they're gonna let the emotion cloud the judgment. So if Gerard in two, three years' time isn't of the a manager of, of the required quality or isn't showing the things that they want to see in a manager, then they're not gonna appoint him just because he's Steven Jarrard. I like, think we have need to be absolutely clear about that. And I also think Gerard wants to earn the job on merit. He doesn't want to get the job because he's Steven Gerard. I think he wants to get the job because he is the right man for it. So I, I honestly I don't know which route they would take. If they were to choose a replacement club right now, today, it would be Ten Hag, I think. I genuinely think it would be Ten Hag. But well, I honestly do think a lot of it rests on how Gerard develops as a manager because if Gerard does turn out to be a really good manager in the next two, three years and we see it being a process of a style of play, year-on-year improvement, and I don't see why he can't get a job.
1: So what you're saying is he doesn't want to be Frank Lampard, yeah? Same. Basically,
0: Because um... <laughs> like Frank Lampard. <laughs> you
1: no,
0: know, the, the route I
3: think they will go if I'm looking at it as like what they've done over the years, obviously, I think obviously you've seen with um, Julian Ward that they kind of like internal um, appointments. So they don't really, if they know, if they have someone who kind of knows the role, who's been working in this kind of setup, been working in the front office, they know how it's like, you know what I'm saying? They, they could have went out and got another, you know what I'm saying? They could have gone out got maybe a rough rag neck or whatever to replace, um, um, what's it called? Edwards, they, but they didn't, they stayed with an office. They stayed with Junior Ward. So I think they actually might cover Pep Linders. Like, Obviously, you've seen that Linders has some, he has a little bit of manager experience, but he's been working as a two under clock um, for a, a, a lot of years. And in internal appointment, I can see if doing it, you know what I'm saying? So I think they might actually go for Pep Linders. You see the way he talks in the press conferences, you see the way he handles himself, and everyone gives him glowing reports, you know what I'm saying? And I, I do believe he wants to become a manager, but I think the appeal of kind of um, working on the clock and working for such a big team as Liverpool has kind of like um, stalled it. But yeah, I think Linders is definitely gonna become a manager when um club leaves Liverpool and it might be level
0: Liverpool. I'm not so, sure a bit, but... I, I, I'm I'm really not happy with the Pep Linders option. Not because I don't like Pep Linders, I think he's a great coach. Because you gagged think...
1: for Gerard. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Bro, listen, I've been I was the first one again on the Gerard twenty twenty four bandwagon. But like honestly, so People who are apprehensive about Stephen Jarre becoming our manager will cite a lack of experience. Like, it like you, make you sense. Say lack of experience. Like, yeah, it makes so, no sense at the moment. So, how can you. So, <laughs> I don't know, but I'm, not, I'm not having a go at you, Pete. I'm just saying. So, people are saying, oh, Jarre lacks experience. He's only managed yeah. Rangers and Aston Villa. People are now saying Pep Linders, who managed yeah, what? And has been, been, and been an, an assistant. Yeah. Yeah. I think Pep Linders to replace Clock like, would be an absolutely.
3: Well, actually, it, it of our it it of the, kind of our situation of him being.
0: Able to I think it'd or... be, I think it'd be mad personally, but that's just me. Um, Mush, yeah,
2: I, I've been listening. I, I guess I look at the my caution with the Pep Linders appointment comes from a different angle, right? My my angle would be more about, and I look, I look, I look at other companies outside of football that suffer from this as well, which is sometimes even when a culture is really good and at its height and its peak, even successful cultures can get stale. And what you can often need is a perspective or an experience from somewhere else to change the way something is looked at. And if all you do is replace the lens with the exact same lens, it, it doesn't create a new perspective. And I think that's really important with someone like Pep Lindus because if, if all you've worked with are Liverpool's players for the past five years or six years, how how knowledgeable are you with dealing what with what else is out there? You might think that there's nothing better than Sadio Mane, for example, but a manager who's worked with other players will will know that there's other players with other strengths. There's, there's a lot more exposure to football that's needed um, for you to have a, a broader view and I think Pep Linders works in in just the bubble of Liverpool and when you're coming into Liverpool when it's transition time let's say Klopp randomly left early because he fell out with the board Pep Linders would have been perfect because that's a natural continuity but now that this Klopp cycle is going to finish you can't bring in Pep Linders to just be Klopp again he needs to do it with new players and a new way of playing and I don't know if, if he's got the variety for that. I don't know if I've conveyed that point properly. But... Yeah, no, that was perfect. That was perfect. I, I
3: agree with you. I was saying that I think that could be a route they take. Me personally, the way I would look at it, obviously I would want Ten Hag, but Ten Hag is kind of, I don't think, I think he'll take another job. Between now and 2024.
0: Yeah, the gap's too long. The gap's yeah. too can, long I, too can
2: I just long. say something about the Gerard thing, though? Because I think it's weird. It's like I'm listening to the flipping crown or something, right? That Steven Gerrard is not being raised for succession to Liverpool Football Club to manage Liverpool until the day he dies. That's not how it's going to work. We might... Steven Gerrard might be on a hot streak within two years of managing Villa and it might be those next four years that he comes into Liverpool, does well and then goes and he's done his bit. It doesn't... You know, great players, just because they have an affinity to the club doesn't mean they're being primed to manage them for 20 years that, that era of oh, football is gone no,
3: Mike, Mike's seen it for the next 20 years bro I can see it Mike's <laughs> <Yeah>, Mike, Mike, seen <laughs> Mike, Mike,
2: Mike, Mike thinks we're going to Mike thinks we're going to bury Steven Gerrard in
0: like <laughs> Anfield or something in, in the final game I, I don't understand no, what this thing do, is do you know what do you know what on the Gerrard thing as well like so I listen if Gerrard's good enough like so my my caveat is if Gerrard's good enough wanting to be a manager at some point in the in the future I'm actually slightly reluctant to have him after Klopp just because of the whole big shoes to fill thing. So it's like Alex Ferguson, right? The person who came after Ferguson was always gonna have an incredibly tough job. Yeah. And I think the person who comes after Klopp, because Klopp will probably go down for me as our best ever manager. And the last thing I want is Rajar to have to replace our best ever manager and have the weight of that and also the weight of being Steven Gerrard on his shoulders. Those burdens to I carry, think... those are two really big burdens to carry.
2: But, Mike, I think you're being narrow in your example here because I know Fergie is the common one we go to. But if we look at someone like Conte, who won four four or five titles in a row with Juve, right? Um, They picked the right man in Allegri and it continued. Do you get what I mean? So, it's it's not always the case. You look at Madrid. Ancelotti was a really successful build period where they got um, La Decima. You move on to Zidane. It it can happen. You know what I mean? It's... um,
0: So the reason I use Ferguson as the example, is it is an obvious example it's because I think like Klopp, he was more than just a coach. I think he, these managers almost became. But then like, wasn't wasn't Conte wasn't Conte in that sense? Then, because I don't Ube think, came up. Was he Kopp was he Kopp an icon in the same way Klopp is for Liverpool? Like Klopp 100%. for us is really like Klopp embodies the spirit of Liverpool the city, let alone the club. <laughs> like, okay, but then is, Conte
2: Conte was also the the captain that took them to two champions league finals that they were unlucky to lose, lifted them out of Calciopoli, rebuilt the club, and then they, they became the institution they are. I think we're underestimating Conte's significance. significantly.
0: Bro, listen, I, I want Gerard as our manager at some point because of the fairy tale and I think he is he will be he will prove to be good enough. But like I, I do have a slight apprehension about him replacing Cops because I do think there's a big shoes to fill. And like he will have a big kind of and on top of that, he's Stephen Gerard so he like the pressure of he's lived through the pressure of being Liverpool captain and like he's spoken about how that weighed heavily on him. Being a Liverpool manager will be a similar burden. He's from the city, he loves the club, P&E. Um, and on that form of the other club, I do think that'll be a challenge. If Anyone can rise to that challenge it's Steven Gerrard. Do
3: you know what I need? Do you know what I need? Just take this conversation over right from Steven Gerrard. I, I need Graham Potter, mate. That's that's what I need. Oh XG. no! X. Do you know what I need? <laughs> <laughs> I need. Rodgers, listen. This is how it's gonna work. I need Rodgers to go to my United this end of the season. Graham Potter takes the Leicester job, improves them, gets maybe a top four finish, and then boom, 2024 comes. We take Potter from Leicester, new Liverpool manager. Leswell, out playing everyone next year. Boom, you know what I'm saying having the the, the, the you, know what you see the patterns of play. Hey, what are they? Potter,
2: Potter so you, want, you want vibes, that's what you want. You want <laughs> vibes,
3: <laughs> it's not vibe. Are you seeing these patterns of play, mate? He's got bloody Connolly, he's got the Lana running like madmen. There's, there's a reason, there's a reason you're calling called,
2: it XG. There's a reason you're calling it XGFC <laughs> and
3: not G. All right, listen, but he's, he's gonna have the best, fin- well, one of the best finishes in the league in Teller, so he's gonna be able to convert XG into goals. You're not
2: seeing the vision. 2024 let Salah retire, brother.
0: (laughs) 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 And you told me I wanted Gerard to retire at the club. Bloody hell, you want to have to sound until he's like 40, don't you?
3: (laughs) What's your thoughts on this guy? I know you're not the biggest fan of Gerard taking over.
1: I'm not the biggest fan of him taking over in the near future. I think if it's like 10 years down the line, um, and he's earned. You know, he he's got the scars to kind of prove and he's got the medal, you know, not even the medals on his chest, he's got, you know, those those life medals on him from a managerial point of view. I, I'm all for it. I think you're looking at it next Liverpool, next next Liverpool manager needs to be someone with that kind of experience, you know, who who's kind of navigated champ, tough Champions League fixtures, who's seen the rigors of a campaign through um through tough periods. Um and someone who kind of knows. What they want to do from a culture perspective, uh, as well, because I think Jared, I think Gerard's in a really good position now, especially at Villa, where he can kind of really start to build the formulation of what kind of manager he wants to be over the long term. So he can really start to form that identity of what kind of manager do, does he want to be. Does he want to be a very data-driven manager? Does he want to be very kind of an emotional manager off that off that point? Um, and he can actually start to build a squad now with a decent budget, which is the big thing for me too. So it's going to be really interesting to see what players that he does bring in over the next 18 months for that Villa team because there's some very good players there. Um, but it'll be interesting to see what gaps he identifies they need to kind of build on. The easiest win for him there is just to be in Tyne Mings. That's the easiest win. That's the easiest win that he can do. But if he's and if he, but if he's still playing Tyro Mings this weekend, I might have to. You know, I might I might already be off the train. Um, I, honestly, I honestly think he
0: will love Tyro Mings. But
1: just
0: well, something about Tyro Mings goes. that manages this good character, gives it his all. Yeah, but you can do material,
1: that on the bench? All of that <laughs> stuff. He <laughs> <laughs> can do it on the bench, but yeah, for me, someone like Ted Ten Hag would be would be perfect. I mean, um, I watched the. Presentation that one of the data uh, gave for, for my, you kind of see the very similarities of Ajax as a club to Liverpool as an institution. How kind of how they run, how they do things in the background, and it's 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 so similar. And it really made me laugh when he said the other day at a quote, um, "I don't really like to rely on date, data too much." I was there thinking, "You lying, you lying shit! Your club <laughs> literally lives off it. Um, it lives and breathes it." So, yeah, I guess he doesn't want to play his hand too much. But yeah, you look at the style of play that Ajax do have. Um, and I always find it fascinating when people are managing to get you know a f- fully firing Sebastian Allaire going, uh, both in the Eredivisie and in the Champions League too. So that's always quite an interesting little loop to have. Um, but yeah, I think the, the, the overwhelming sentiment with him is that he will be in another job um, bef- before that happens. Um, hopefully he won't be um and hopefully it's definitely not going to be the Man United job because I think if he took the Man United job the culture shock he would have going from Ajax to Manchester United he would just really? melt his brain, It would be insane trying
0: to, trying to get Ronaldo and Bruno to press properly it would just be an absolute nightmare for
1: him. I think he'd look at Juan Bissaka okay. and think what is this? What's going on <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I, lad, You're a centre-back I don't know what you're doing at right back
2: So, so good God I do think, though, one, one thing I really like about Ten Hag, which translates to Liverpool, is that, yes, Ajax are are incomparable to everyone in the Dutch League, so I don't really want to look at the Eredivisie stuff. I think what's good about Ajax is that he's managing managing a team and competing in the Champions League with a team that doesn't have everything. And even though Liverpool yes. are a massive club, Liverpool are a massive club, but again, when we're trying to compete with the three teams above us right now, right so well the three teams financially above us in our own league and then you look at the other champions we do not have the weight that they do so being able to show that you can work within some sort of constrained limitations is is a big 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 thing i think in terms of how he competes in the champions league
1: i completely agree i mean you look at some of the was, like I said those battle scars that he's already got from that Europa League final against United a few years ago um, and that semi-final um, against Spurs as well when he when he was manager so he's kind of got those battle scars there and like, I mean, that's a really good point on the squad there much it's, as it's well
0: similar to and Klopp he, as well like Klopp has a body had a body of work before he came to Liverpool of a manager who punched above his weight and was mm-hmm, able to mm-hmm. maximise like talent like Hummels like Gundogan who didn't come with like big reputations, but you maximise their ability and their talent, and they've obviously gone on to be amazing players. So Ten Hag has done that similar with like players like Tadic, with Anthony um, Halaire, who plays probably weren't that fast. Anthony. <laughs> Anthony. <laughs> so yeah, like he, so like they are. I think he has got a similar body of work to Klopp actually, and, and if he did come, he, he would have been able to show that he has punched above his weight and, and done and, and exceed expectations of him which is like Mushev would be actually a really nice set of skills to show before you get the Liverpool job
1: so keep it on I'm going to end the JR thing on this so what markers do you think he have to reach now uh, kind of in order to be in the running for the Liverpool job you know whether it be uh, in three years time five years time or ten years time what do you think he has to reach like we were talking about KPIs earlier what do you think he needs to hit to be in that consideration
0: so, so we we discussed this in the chat just for the listeners. We discussed this in the chat the other day, and Ellis said, <laughs> he "I can't believe Ellis top... said this." <laughs> yeah, he needs to finish in the top four. I think it was right. It was yes. just ridiculous. It was like it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. Like Aston Villa <laughs> will not finishing the top four on the job, barring a miraculous collapse from the other like big six. Right, so Spurs who have Conte now, by the way, um, even Arsenal looking okay under Arteta at the moment. Us. Um, United, who will eventually sack a on the Solskjaer. city Mike, you don't
2: and... need to explain why Villa
0: won't finish in the top four. Don't worry, well, bro. About I just, that. just to make sure, because the listeners, some listeners might be on board with Ellis, <laughs> but like, I honestly think what what needs what Giardini do is show a year-on-year improvement. So I think Potter's a kind of good reference point for him. So what we've seen with Potter at, at Brighton is a year-on-year improvement. So the first year he kind of institutionalises this kind of style of football. In the second year, okay, it's a bit mad, with lockdown, but you, again, you see a kind of uh, improvement with Brighton. And now we're seeing Brighton punch off their weight and really give some of the bigger sides, like us at Anfield, obviously, a really t- tough time. Um, like, you know, again, again, against us, I thought they were much better than us in the second half. They outplayed us on the day and, and they look like a team that can, you know, potentially finish one of the European spots. I think for Gerard, he's inheriting a really, really good squad, a squad for the talented mm-hmm. players, a, a, a squad that's been heavily invested into, by the way. And I think for him, it, you know There'll be pressure on him to at least, you know, finish in, in, Europe, in European spot at some point. Um, I do think this year a top half finish should be on the cards. I don't see why not with the squad he has. And after that, it'll be a European finish, um, and you know, trying to go far in Europe at some point. Um, but just for him, he needs to get kind of really get a clear style of play. I like I think one of his strengths as manager is that he's been quite adaptable so far. So he's not been someone he's not an absolute. Like, so he's not like a Pep Guardiola you who know, lives and dies by a particular style of play. But what we want to see is a set of principles that guide him and that kind of flow through his teams and that we can kind of see we can week out. Okay, this is a Steven Gerrard team. I think we've seen that at Rangers, but doing that at a, big, a, be, a bigger, not a bigger club, a better club or a club that are in the, in the Premier League will be quite key for him to show that he can to be a little but manager. Then, but then, Mike, what...
2: I guess Christian's question was more about... I, I completely understand he needs to be able to show that his identity is clear, but what are the markers or
0: milestones you think Need to be passed to show he's good enough it's just, for Liverpool. It's just so. It's just so hard to think about particular markers, though, because Villa are just if Villa are in this position in Premier League, right, where there are. So we all know there are these kind of big six clubs, right? Who will, yes, barring barring like a collapsing form, will finish in the top six in any order. It's hard to know what Villa and the other clubs beneath them, and I think there's will be we'll see a big gap between those clubs open up in the next few years. I don't know what success is for this club, really, because they're clubs that, so like, with Villa, they're heavily in that squad, got good players, but they're never going to be better than the top six clubs unless they punch really above their weight. And I think it's an unfair expectation to be like, well, he has to finish in top six, otherwise well, he's not a local manager. Well, actually, if he shows them at Villa a year in year improvement, so Villa, at the moment, are struggling, they need to stay up and maybe finish in top half. A year after that, we've seen them in Europe or, or in the European places. And maybe a year after that, we've seen them do really well in the Premier League and also maybe go far in Europe. I think those are the kind of things I want to see Gerard do, year-on-year improvement. And I'm we're actually seeing Villa play in a particular way. We're seeing Gerard's like kind of ethos, his, his principles, really shine through that ability. And that's what I want to see. Similar to Graham Possible, I don't think Graham Potter will get a big job because he finishes in the top five or top, or, or top six. It will be because there's been a year-on-year improvement, his philosophy is quite clear. You can kind of see how he would replicate that philosophy at a bigger club and do well. See, see for me, my, I th-
2: you guys tell me if you if you feel I'm f- far out here, but I think Villa are big enough and wealthy enough to progressively become as good and as stable as a club like Leicester. I I, I don't I don't see them two as stratospheres apart. I think Villa can become Leicester, and if you look at less Leic- at where Leicester are now, I think what. I agree with Mike about Gerard having to install a dependable and a consistent style of play where week in, week out, you kind of start expecting which games Villa should win and those games they should win, they do win. That I, I understand. But I think where Gerard can show he's more of a special manager, whether that's, that's through his charisma or through his managerial talent, is when there's an opportunity to win something or get far in a competition or, or win a big game or a cup, can Gerard show that because I think there is value to being Stephen Gerard whether same way there's value to being Zinedine Zidane. if to the other day when Stephen Gerard walked into the training ground there is aura you're gonna be amazed that Stephen Gerard manages you and he runs up to you and you score a goal I think you can you should if you're a clever person that should be a string to your bow to inspire and and push players further so I, I think Gerard should be What's it? Leveraging that basically to to become a better manager than someone like Brendan Rodgers, who without his craft would never be able to produce that.
3: You know what? Yeah, I'm kind of in agreement with Mike. You know, I hear what is saying, but I just feel like Arsenal Villa—it's a really, really smart pick because they don't really have set like um they haven't really been in Premier too long recently, and obviously, even if you look at Sodine Smith, right. The narrative around people was that he's a really good manager, he's playing progressive football, he's got Jack Grealish, this, that. Like, that was literally the narrative around him until the end of last season. And you think last season, like everyone was so saying that our Villa did a great job doing this. Well, I think they ended up finishing maybe like 12th or 13th. They didn't really finish, you know what I'm saying, in a high place. And it's just about, I think, having an identity. Kind of, sorry, there's a bit of background noise. Um, yeah, so I think it's just about having an identity and kind of playing week to week and progressive football and kind of just, imp- like, I think you've got the better players as well and kind of um, just, yeah, so having your principles and sticking to them. So even you look at, I don't know, like, so Newcastle as well, Steve Bruce, he kind of, he was always in trouble because the narrative around him was that he played rubbish football. But I think he even had the same finishes as, like, a bunch of Benitez. I don't think Bethra Benitez finished higher than him in his respective seasons. But the narrative around Steve Bruce was that he plays rubbish football and that they don't really create chances and that they're, they're kind of um heavily reliant on Wilson, Sir yet and he was always yeah, playing in yeah, so, because
0: So there's a lack of clarity. There was a lack of clarity under Steve Bruce. Where with, with with Rafa, okay, they weren't finishing in top ten. But there was a clarity. You knew the kind of approach. You knew what Rafa wanted to do. But and they were it always in
3: relegation in battle, exactly. Rafa as well. They no,
0: were it's, all... like it's a great. I think it's a great example. I think on on Mush's point about punching above his weight, maybe, and when we use the example of Ten Hag and White. We think he would be a great local manager because he actually can do that. I think for for for, for Gerard, because I I'm basically basing my expectations of Gerard on the fact that I think the Top Six will be a fairly solid block of teams that will finish in those Top Six places for like the foreseeable at least. But I actually think if any of those clubs do have a different form, and they're in a bit of trouble. Like maybe Spurs have been this season so far. I want in a year's time or two years time Villa to be the club that capitalised on that. So I don't want it. So we've seen Leicester do it recently, right? Leicester been a club be in the top five finishing the. That's, that's why I use that example. I would. Want, that's that's a fair marker of like, okay, if one of those clubs do ha- have a different form. Yeah, I'm, Villa, I'm not Villa should be in the over mix. Over Villa should time. be in the mix with West Ham and Leicester. To pick. Let's, you guys remember Leicester won the Premier League, right? let's, let's literally won but you What about
2: West Ham then? What about West then?
3: Well yeah, West Ham's a good example, but I think that's kind of like Moyes kind of um out he's 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 punching, isn't it? He's really, really punching his way. Even if Moyes were finishing around, but but Pete, 15, Pete 15, I think he would, Pete, he would have been you're,
2: fine. You're, anyway. you're saying that, Pete, but that was Chris's question. When I interpreted Chris's question, Chris's question was it wasn't what will what will Gerard have to do for, to, for people to rate him? It's what level does Gerard need to get to to become good enough to manage a super club like Liverpool Football Club? So what, having a nice look. style of play, having a nice style of play is what Ger- Graham Potter's doing right now. Doesn't mean he's ready for Liverpool right now. I think the markers of how he's doing well at Villa are very different to what heights does he need to hit for Liverpool to be the next step? And the heights he needs to hit is to be like we're talking about troubling the top six. I'm not saying become one of the top six. I'm saying troubling them. I'm saying trying to win stuff. You need to do something special at the current club you're at, not just have something nice and steady to be good enough to manage Liverpool football.
0: Club. Yeah, no, I no, think I, that's I, that to be fair. That's part the year-on-year improvement now, I think, yeah. though. So, I think in two years' time, it can be like Gerard should be expected to be at least really competitive against those top six clubs but I'm, I'm basing my hypothesis that I'm, my, the reason why I say it's unfair to say you should finish in top six is because I do think those top six clubs will get to a point where I think United will get rid of Ole I think Arsenal will even improve under Arteta will get rid of him and I think eventually you see those top six clubs really become a block in the league and it becomes really hard to break into that so I'm saying if that becomes the case it's hard to then say Josh Stewart West Ham are doing now because right now Tottenham are not where they should be and Arsenal are not where they should be do you know what I mean? So I, I essentially don't think those six clubs have been disarray moving forward. I actually think there'll be a bit of similarity with those clubs and they'll, and they'll, they'll all be the, the big six. I, I agree, but I've
2: said the words troubling them. I didn't... I didn't no, I understand. Say, I, didn't take them. Yeah, I, I understand. Think, I think you can get as close as possible to them. Basically, like, for example, I think Everton have done a shit job because Everton have spent 100 million every year and not gotten any closer to becoming as good as any of these clubs. Whereas I think Steven Gerrard needs to prove that people can legitimately ask the question, this guy's doing so well at Villa. If we gave him more money, he would definitely be able to overtake, which is, I think, what a lot of people would say about Rodgers now, having done such a good job at Leicester.
0: Yeah, I think it's about, if, if, can you look at Steven Gerrard in a few years' time and look at what he's done at Villa and be like, he can replicate that at, at like a bigger club like Liverpool and have huge success. I think that would be the question you need to ask ourselves in a few years' time. And if the answer is actually no, then he will be the Liverpool manager. and It will be that simple.
1: Yeah, because it's, it's it's such an interesting question to kind of really interpret because I think for me, when you're looking at who could be, you know, who should be in the running to be the next Liverpool manager when that time does come, I think there's certain benchmarks that that person would have had to, and the certain benchmarks, and like, you know, with any job, really, the ben- be- certain benchmark and requirements that person needs to have met. So, you know, not, not asking for like fifteen years of experience in you know a, a field that's completely you know, not involved in what he's doing, but I think mean, it has to be someone with you know some, some decent European experience first of all, because you know you've had the club to be at the highest epsilon of European football year in year out. Um, it's got to be someone with a decent track record of achieving greatness or be nearing to greatness in terms of trophies. Um, so I think there's loads of benchmarks that need to be here and I don't necessarily think that Gerard can do it at Aston Villa as odd as that sounds. Um, so that's why I think it's not... That's why I think this narrative of Gerard 2024 is really kind of weird and forced because I don't think he'll be in the frame for 2024. If it was 2030, I think he would be in the frame then because you have a longer track record of how he's progressed and evolved as a manager by that point to see that to see where he kind of benchmarks and against sort of KPIs. Chris, do you, do you think somewhere like um,
2: that next step, do you think it would be good to be somewhere like... Um... I'm thinking Leipzig or something like that, where you get Champions League. You're competitive, not not gonna overtake Bayern ever, but you're competitive in your league as well. Do you think that's a that's a good
0: stepping stone after Villa?
1: Leipzig could be a really good one. Yeah.
0: Yeah, okay. Leverkusen, which and Glad about, those kind of teams. I I think a move to the Bundesliga it would have been actually a really good move for him.
2: Hmm. Hmm. But then you can develop some bad habits in the Bundesliga as well, right? With your crazy crazy high lines and stuff. So I don't know.
1: Yeah, we play our high line on the halfway line. <laughs> but some way everyone always scores. They know where to go. <laughs> <laughs> those, those Bundesliga defending. Um but yeah it's it's a really interesting it's, it's a really interesting discussion and it'd be kind of really interesting who will be the candidates within that frame uh when the time does come. Um so yeah I want to talk a little bit about the festive running, just a little bit. But briefly, so kind of just question I want to ask you guys. Did, do you think we see kind of in this in this run now, from now to the roundabout new year, do we see one team kind of starting to pull away during this <clears throat> upcoming run, or do you think it's still going to be very close, neck and neck um, as the weeks progress and the games so, move on?
0: So I've had a look at the fixtures, and if any team will do it, it will be City based on their fixtures, I think. And City have done it before. City have had the institutional knowledge of having put together Runs of like ridiculous runs of wins where they go on to win the league. So they did it in 1718, did it in 1819, they did it last year, and if they do it again, this will be like the kind of fourth year. So, and it's pretty much the same group of players, barring a few additions, right? um I think our fixtures are quite tough when you look at our fixtures over Christmas. I think up until the Villa game at Anfield, the fixtures look quite fine, but then after well or Newcastle at Anfield, sorry, but then after that like, we have Tottenham away. We have Leeds at home, we have Leicester away, and we have Chelsea away. So that's kind of a really tough block of games. I think City's games are a lot more manageable over that same period. What I would say is, looking at Chelsea's games, they have a really tricky sort of festive, sort of festive fixtures, and I remain a Chelsea skeptic in that. I think they have some hallmarks of champions. So they're very resolute defensively. They've only conceded three goals, but I remain unconvinced that they will be able to get the job done against some sides who really sit deep and try to frustrate them. I don't think they've got enough match winners on that side in the same way that we do. We have Salah possibly Jota as well, know when he comes back in. And I think Chelsea can be frustrated in some of those games. So, yeah, I, I think Liverpool hopefully stay in touch with whoever does put together a run, because I do think it will be City that put together a run. But I think we'll be able to stay in touch and hopefully we're not too far off them going into the turn of the year.
1: You're not concerned at City dropping silly points? because They can.
0: City the sort of team that drop points. It's like so... You can kind of you can't predict the games of drop points, it'll be like a random draw to like Watford one-one or something ridiculous, or like, do you Once know what I, I mean? Was, they they, they yeah, drop
1: points uh, for anyone. I was just looking at the Palace game, and it's it's a weird one. That's such a weird... I mean, there's history to that fixture in itself, but I just felt it's really it was really weird that they dropped points to um, Palace specifically with the way that they play. Um, whereas you know you saw that Chelsea beat them. Opening day of the season, I think 3 0, and then we beat them 3 0. Um, and again, what you, when you watch them play against Southampton, I don't think they had a shot on target until like the last 10 minutes of the game. So it's a really interesting set of circumstances for City because you could definitely, the track record would say that they will put this together and they will go on that run where they look like champions. But there's also those games where they just look like they're devoid of having a number nine, which I think is something they might address in uh, in, in January.
0: Yeah, I think yeah. City will oscillate between like two extremes. Yeah. They'll either be breathtaking and win 4-0, or it'll be like very occasionally frustrating and they'll either lose 2-0, 1-0, or they'll draw. And there won't be much middle ground, I don't think. I could be wrong. Um, but they could, they, City seem like they're going to be going from one extreme to another, so they're going to be absolutely devastating like they were against Man United, where they could have won a game 4-0, but it was only 2-0. And it'll just yeah. smother you to death, or they'll just be so frustrating to watch for their fans Um, and win the games. But I think they have the fixtures to definitely go on a run, but it remains to be seen. And fingers crossed if if they don't go on a run. I think we'll pick up enough points to at least stay in touch with anyone who does go on a run. I do think our fixtures are manageable, but I don't think there's sort of fixtures where you, you win 10-11 because you, Leicester away, Chelsea away, Tottenham away. These are tricky games.
1: I think Austin City have got similar issues in a way because we look like one game, breathtaking, fantastic, 3-0. And the next game, it's... It could end up in a two-two, and you have no idea how you've got there. So it's just, <laughs> yeah, it's it's mad. And the Chelsea thing, I do agree with you, Mike, because I'm not having it. that Reese James being the top goal scorer is the mark of a champion. Uh, oh, mate, song. I'm
0: so I'm so Chelsea sceptic. It's unreal, and they're top of the league, by the way. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's um, it's absolutely insane. Uh, Peter, I'll, I'll, I'll come to you, kind of similar question, really, and I guess I also want to ask you this question as well, kind of getting into it. Who do you think has been the better team so far this season, uh, City or Chelsea?
3: I would say, City, um, and the way I look at it is kind of, um, I think I don't know. It's a weird, don't I believe the first game was kind of like a, so against Tottenham they lost to like New North Tottenham. You know what I'm saying? That's a real kind of anomaly. And obviously, if they played that game again, I felt like ten times they would probably win that game. So yeah. and they would probably be top. So it was just a really weird game. Again, a lot of their players weren't there from. Um, The Euros and stuff like that, they again, they were kind of like missing a lot of players. So, yeah, I don't know. I think, again, with Chelsea, they have a really, really solid defense. And obviously, a a really solid defense always gives you a chance, but they're not really creating as many goals, um, chances, and they're not really scoring as many. Obviously, Lukaku went on a really good run firstly, but then kind of struggled to score. Havertz has not really scored as as many, but they seem, yeah, they seem to find goals from like James, Chilwell. Like these kind of like random avenues. But I would say probably City have been the most impressive um, in terms of the way they play, constantly creating chances, beating teams. You know what I'm saying? So, and yeah, again, they haven't even got a striker. So, you know what I'm saying? So, but again, it's really neck and neck. I I wouldn't say City have been miles clear of Chelsea. Yeah. I think both of them look really impressive. I think we've looked good at times. It's just our defense. That's been a bit worrying. But yeah, it's just, it's just been, it's been really like, um, yeah, I, th- I think I think it goes down to the wire, and especially in the Christmas um, fixtures. I think we'll get enough. I think we'll do a run. So especially the Champions League, us qualifying from the group early that gives us kind of a chance to focus on the Premier League. And I think we'll definitely do a run at some stage. Um, so yeah, I think if any of them pulls away, I think we'll be right next, then right next to them.
1: Before we move on to the next question, I'm gonna ask you all: Who do you think will finish higher in the table, City or Chelsea?
0: I'm I'm always gonna
1: be more concerned about City. Cool. I'm gonna
0: say City. Mush.
2: I I don't know what to say to this. <laughs> I'm so I'm so with you guys in the sense of I find Chelsea and the concept and the existence of Chelsea so fucking boring. Um, I'm, gonna say, me, just... I don't know, I'm gonna say. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say Chelsea are gonna finish higher because I think there's going to be no drama there's going to be lots of 1-0s I think they're going to their defensive record is just going to hold them up whereas I I agree with you Krish I think that the number nine aspect is is eventually going to going to hold city back because I think you're depending on a lot of players who aren't natural goal scorers to just keep naturally getting goals
1: Peter?
3: Ooh, I don't even. I, I, I think City have been more impressive, but it's just hard because I think Chelsea have this way of finding results. Even their their forward line bloody stinks. Like, I'll be honest, <laughs> like it stinks. Like you got like um like Mount he's, he's not like a ten. He's more of like a. I, I I've always seen mount as an eight. So when you're on him to constantly create chances, and you're gonna struggle. You got like bloody team of Werner. where less said on him, the better. You got Ziyech. bruv ZX like it just stinks like it just absolutely reeks like
2: um and Cho is playing now though and he's playing really well.
3: yeah Cho's looking good but again you know what I'm saying I know when, when crunch time comes I don't know if Tuchel trusts him to play you know what I'm saying so like he's playing now because Lukaku's injured um and The wellers into the well. so when they come back, we'll have a, a will. Um, Hudson, do start? I don't know. You, uh, Pulisic, boy, like it's just but they're just finding ways to win, so I don't know. It's tough, man.
0: It's tough, maybe. I'm, I'm, just like, to have a bit of a yeah. by the way, because like Chelsea, I think the lack of... well, apart from Lukaku, hasn't actually looked that good when he's played Chelsea recently. Um, they haven't got a killer, City haven't got a killer, really. Um, they have orders to score goals, <laughs> but they're not killers. We have Mane, Jota, and Salah, who I all think are one in two players. And I think when we need a goal, one of those people will invariably up. And I don't think the other teams have that. I don't think they have like three people to call on to score a goal. I look, defense, bro. Mike, we do not bro. look as solid. We don't look even a
2: fraction mm. as solid as they do at all.
1: So we look, We I think out of all of them, we look the most can. Run up the scoreboard. We look don't look out of goals, which is the mad thing. We look very 16-17, 17-18. Um, which is wild when you when you really do think about it. But uh, I think this is why I think it's dead difficult to kind of really think of one one team at this stage, especially, who's gonna run run away with it in the within the next month, because there's so many kind of flaws within each team that can hinder them from going on this specific run. But for us, what do you think needs to happen to kind of go on that run? Um not even on the on, on the winning streak, but just to kind of go on another unbeaten run again where we win ten out of thirteen. Um do you think it's just kind of having more of a stable midfield going into this kind of section of games? Because that obviously within this period since the previous international break to the well the, the international break before the international break that we've just have just had, the midfield has been the big issue there. So do you think winning that's more stable and we kind of play Fabinho, Thiago, Henderson, that will be more beneficial to us, kind of having that going forward?
2: I personally don't think it's a personnel thing. I think I completely agree with you in it being a midfield thing. I think the main feature that we've seen recently, we've only won two of our last five league games. I think one thing that we can probably all agree on is that there are Liverpool games where we may not win or we have a frustrating result, but we're shaped and we're our tempo is so good in such a way that we're just getting to final third positions and we don't have the quality. Whereas I feel what we're looking at at the moment with Liverpool is we're not in the final third and probing. We're not dominating. We're not dominating the territory. If that makes sense. Um, we're, we're, we're not pushed up as a team in the pitch. It looks like when we get the ball, we've got the quality to create a chance, but the attack and defence are miles apart because we didn't come up together by building up. It was just our quality that got us up the pitch. A bit like Man United, really.
1: So um, I with that, I'd argue that we do look capable of doing those things. It's just we're conceding far too many stupid goals.
2: So you don't think, you don't think those goals are being conceded because we look more porous. Do you think it's error-based?
1: You look at look at the most recent goals we've conceded, I think it's, they're either A, individual errors, or they're just kind of mad occurrences. So pre, you, you could kind of look at every single goal against West Ham and say, that is just a mad goal to concede. Um, but
2: then, Chris, don't you think, going by West Ham and Brighton, two examples, mm-hmm. outside of the goals what was going on in terms of us being broken on, us conceding chances, us being exposed was was frequent during those games?
1: Brighton, more so. West Ham, less so, because it was more set-piece based. But the Brighton one, I can kind of put down to the fact that we didn't really have a midfield for that game. Um, and again, their mm. second goal... So my thing with this is, with a Brighton game especially, and to a certain extent West Ham, most of the goals we've conceded this season are erasable in terms of Mm -hmm. positioning and just being a bit more switched on. So that's why I think it gives me a bit more hope going into this kind of phase of play. And I think when you have more of that unit operating holistically and on the same page, you can eradicate those mistakes, if that makes sense.
2: So you think that comes from continuity then, as in in terms of lineup? Okay. I'd say so.
3: Yeah, I, I definitely agree as well. I think when you have a stable midfield, I think relationships start to build much better. And um, I think we kind of have some structural issues in terms of. I think people like Henderson and people um, Chamberlain are kind of making a more of an effort to kind of get forward and we're seeing it kind of help us in terms of our attack and kind of help Seller and Mane. And you see the triangle form on the right hand side of Sella. Henderson, Trent, but it's also leaving, you know what I'm saying, the right-hand side exposed, which is something we didn't see last. So last season, we were complaining about how we can't create chances and we're kind of lacking goals and stuff like that. And we kind of see an increase in that this season. But again, it's, we've lost control and defensive stability. And we're seeing a lot of goals come from where our um, eights or our midfielders are not supporting our defence or the kind of cohesiveness is kind of gone. So again, if people play more often, I think you see the relationship, so maybe you saw like a Fabinho, Henderson, Tiago Midfield, or Fabinho, Henderson, Kate midfield play more often, the relationship that Kate, Robertson and Mane have, like, they have a really good relationship, they kind of know where each other are going to be, they kind of know like when to kind of, you know what I'm saying, um, you know, I mean? I'm standing for someone, better. tear, so, but then again, when you're constantly switching and you have Jones comes in, you have um, Chamberlain comes in, you have constantly changing it, relationship goals you know what I'm saying so we kind of need that stability and kind of that cohesiveness to um kind of stay the same and it would help us but yeah I, I'm, I'm kind of worried just to control like a feature of Klopp and the last two three years is we're able to control games so well so we're able to kind of control most phases like if phases are not in our way we can't make a change and kind of like control them especially like, like the West Ham second half is crazy to me like I don't. You don't really see games West them second half where we're not in control like that. Like, like when we scored before we scored a goal against West Ham, we were in control. Everything was going in our favor. And the second half, I just felt like West Ham kept coming at us and coming at us, and we don't really see that in club games. So I think that's kind of a worry how our midfield is not able to kind of, um, well, the team, not just midfield, the team's not able to control games anymore. And we're kind of going toe to toe teams, and we're kind of coming out not winners. Like I don't, I rarely see teams go toe to toe with us. And we don't beat them, you know what I'm saying? But this season, we're kind of seeing that we're, we're kind of losing control of games. And I think, yeah, it's definitely a feature by midfield and um, defence not and being cohesive. I, bit... I, think,
0: I think we're also asking too much of secure individuals within the midfield setup. So, I do think the relationships that, that you mentioned are really important. So I I think the beauty of the Liverpool side over the last few years is that we've seen these relationships really blossom. So, Mane and Robertson down the left-hand side, Salah down the right-hand side um, with, with, with Trent. But I do think in midfield, Fabinho has way too much ground to cover sometimes. And we're asking him to have the game of his life every week, <laughs> which just seems unrealistic. We're asking him to have at least 7 or 8 out of 10 every week because he needs to be at his best. Otherwise, when teams transition, you know, if he's not his best, it's going to be, we're going to be, it's going to be quite costly. I do think ideally for us moving forward, we're able to pick, you know, two of Fabinho, Henderson and Thiago. And we're able to kind of pick two of those and actually pick their games as opposed to someone's not fit. We have to, like, get Henderson back in a rush or we have to get Thiago back in a rush because someone's not fit. We actually need to pick their games. And if we're we're able to do that, I'm confident that we be able to put together a run. On the putting together a run thing, actually, because the more I think about it, City could put together a run based on their fixtures. But I actually think because there are three teams who could invariably win this league title, I don't think you're going to need to win 11 in 12. I think. All those three teams, all three of the teams have flaws. I mean, they will drop points. Um, so it could be win a run of like 10 in ten in 13, 9 in 13, maybe but that does it, and a few draws. Um, so yeah, I'm intrigued to see kind of what the bar is. and I think you'll be able to see a kind of a pace in a bar emerge over this Christmas period
1: it's definitely gonna be an interesting one to kind of monitor going forward and of course with that the best place to be for all of that content is the cop and Fracas patron page so head over to www.patreon.com forward slash cop and frackers and subscribe from just three pound a month you can hear more from mike and peter on their show the bantic show uh you can hear a lot more from myself and mush on various other pods we can preview the um, post-match pod I can't remember what the post was called then when it was actually called the post pod yeah. um which is quite bad considering I a nice schedule all the stuff um, <laughs> um and of course we've got a whole host of more stuff coming up as well as we head into this christmas period um more than getting your money's worth for just a free pound per month, so do head over and subscribe today um gentlemen thank you very much for joining me this week i think we've had some really good insightful discussions around the future um which seems all a little bit big and scary, but you know, hopefully when we get there, it will be all good. Um, Peter, Mush, Mike, thank you very much again for joining me. I have been your host this week, Krish. Um, give us a five-star rating on Spotify, Apple, wherever you listen to the pod, um, and we will be back later on in the week with, of course, the. Just like Rack five where it will be kept against Tutching Gooders as we head into the weekend to full we'll take on Arsenal. So be sure to look out for that on our Twitter page, uh, which will be exclusively broadcast as the issue. So do be on the lookout for that. But again, thank you very much for doing this and we will see you soon.